And so what we want to do is, in a scientifically rigorous way, gather data, information, that, mm-hmm. that data, to show that there's actually a problem. We know there's a problem, but we yep. need data. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 9 of Connecting ALS. I'm your host, Mike Stevenson of the ALS Association, and I'm grateful to be back with you for our first episode of 2020. Sounds strange to say, I was mentioning to producer Garrett the other day that 2020 just seems like a very futuristic year, something out of a sci-fi novel, but here we are, and we're looking forward to addressing what we hope are meaningful and relevant topics with you in the months ahead. If you're new to the show, be sure to track us down on your favorite podcast service so you can subscribe or visit connectingals.org and use one of the handy links there. All right, let's get into it. We'd hope to start the new year with a big topic and an influential ALS mind, and we're extremely lucky to secure some time with the ALS Association's Senior Director of Mission Strategy, Dr. Jill Yersak. Dr. Yersak has been involved with ALS research for much of her career, and was gracious enough to share her insight into some of the latest and most promising treatments coming down the pipeline. She also shed light on the therapy development process and what exactly goes into the FDA's potential approval of said therapies. So I hope you're ready to take notes. We cover a lot of ground. We are honored to be joined on the phone this morning by Dr. Jill Yersak, Senior Director of Mission Strategy for the ALS Association. Good morning, doctor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So Dr. Yersak has long been involved with the ALS Research Program at the ALS Association and actually started her career in a lab. You were working on ALS research, right? Yes, I did my postdoctoral fellowship at Brown in ALS research. I had worm models that I made sick with ALS. It's not the type of worm that are in the ground. They're actually very microscopic, and so they're not as gross. (laughs) Sure, sure. That makes sense. Is that kind of those worm model research, is that common or was that a new kind of novel thing at the time? It is pretty common to use the called C. elegans to look at uh, basic cell pathways. My lab at Brown is really well known for that. And it was a really great project. It was a lot of fun. Very cool. Very cool. So that kind of knowledge and background in ALS research obviously lends itself well to your current role. Yeah, I use my background all the time. My new role is in a, as a senior director of mission strategy And what that means is that I help with programmatic and strategy in in the ALS Association National Office that spans our mission, which is care advocacy and research. So I do work really closely with our chief scientist, Colton Dave, who's wonderful, Mm -hmm. and our care and advocacy program to help move those programs forward. So many brilliant minds at the national level. We feel really fortunate to have you all in those spots guiding our research. And I've got a lot of questions for you today, so forgive me if I kind of overwhelm you, but we're, we're excited to, to have you on. I want to start with a question that many of us get all the time at the chapter level, and I'm sure you probably hear it daily in your work because people are naturally curious, but how is it that the ALS Association decides which global research projects to fund? Can you kind of walk us through that process? Sure. So what I want to first emphasize is that the research program that we we run at the ALS Association is global. Right now, we fund, I think, over 110 projects in 13 countries. So it's not just based in the United States. It's all over the world, and we're really proud of that. 
and we fund the best research around the world. So there's no bias for certain people. We only fund what the best science that comes to our doors. So mm-hmm. what we do every year is that we sit down together as an organization and our mission strategy and decide what requests for applications that we want to put out each year. And so we have requests for applications for drug development, basic science, biomarker research, all kinds of different types of research across the board. So across the ALS research pipeline. The only things that we don't fund right now are phase three clinical trials, and I can get into more of that later, but we fund up to phase three trials. And so what happens is that once we decide that, we put an RFA out or a request for applications to our researchers across the world. So we, we work with our communications team to get that out. And then then researchers apply to us. They have to decide to apply to us based on what that RFA is. And we get applications in over the year. It's a rolling basis until the application RFA date ends. There's a deadline. And then what happens then is that we put together expert review panels Mm. so that our chief scientist, Dr. Dave, oversees. So we're not as an association deciding ourselves what to fund, it's our expert panels. What happens is they come together in a room after they read all the applications and they score them based on, is this scientifically meaningful? Is this likely to work? You know, how relevant is it to ALS research? And how good is the science? Do we think we have has real potential to move the field forward? And so they score it based on some of these criteria I just said, and then the scores are compiled by Dr. Dave, and then based on our budget we have each year, we fund a certain number of research projects for each RFA. So currently our budget is $17 million, which we're very excited about. $17 million is split between different RFAs across the research pipeline, again, from basic all the way through phase two clinical trials. Okay. So it's a lot of work for our research department to get all that information together. And then based on our budget, we can make decisions um, what we can find. And then once we have that information, we take it to our board of trustees and our research committee. And they're the ones who make the final okay that these are great to fund. So literally what happens behind the scenes is that Coldip will go into this meeting and present each project to them and say, this is what this, they're trying to do. And this is why we think it's fundable. And at the end, they vote and say, yes, we want to fund these projects. It sounds like a very thorough and very logical step-by-step process. And it's nice to have that sort of behind-the-scenes look, because I think a lot of people have questions about that, really. How do we end up, you know, from those requests for proposals to actually funding the research? Right. And so it, it is a long, thoughtful process that takes in consideration a lot of different criteria that our expert panels really read through and decide how to score these these grants. And then once that's all approved by our board, then the granting process starts, the contracting starts. So we have to make sure that we, we put a contract out to our researchers for that grant with different rules they have mm. to follow. And so that's a whole process in itself. And we have a really great research team comprised of Ashton and Kathy and Heather that really sit back and, and cold up to, to do that contracting process. And so one of the biggest part of that contracting process is that every six months, the researchers have to submit a progress report. What that means is that they have to show that they are hitting the milestones that they lay out in their grant proposal. 
And if they mm. don't hit those milestones, we have the right to take away that money and then put it towards a diff- another project. That's a key part of it. Yeah, it's key because we want to make sure that the money that our donors send us is well spent on projects that are actually moving forward how they're supposed to. And if there's an issue, what happens is that the scientist will call Coldep and he'll, he'll go through with them about how we can improve and move this forward before we have to take away funding. So they have come up with a plan. Yeah. So it's very, very rare we take away funding from researchers, but it can happen. And we have to have that in contracts just to protect ourselves and our donor money. So Dr. Davi does a really great job, or, or Coldip, doing this process. And we're really proud of how stringent we are. And we can see that over the years, we've been able to fund a lot of great research and led to a lot of great breakthroughs over the years. So something to be proud of. Yeah, absolutely. That's great to hear. Thank you for really giving us the full scope of how that process works and letting us in on what goes on. Because people do, I know they have a lot of questions about that and they want to make sure that their research dollars are being responsibly spent. And I really liked what you said about the milestone markers because you do want to ensure that they're hitting each stage and that the research they're working on continues to be promising and will result in something promising so that we're not just kind of throwing that money into stuff that's not going to result in progress. Exactly. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. So uh, as you are well aware, there is a lot of excitement in the ALS community about some of those drug therapies that are currently in development and also uh, a fair bit of frustration from those who are hoping to expedite access to these treatments and find themselves running into roadblocks. There's Plenty of information, as always, flying around on social media, and some of it can be misleading. So the association has been working to really get the facts out there about what's going on with these treatments and this research. And let me just start with the name that I know is on many minds because it's what's driving a lot of the conversation online. I'm talking, of course, about Neuron. Dr. Yersak, what can you tell us about where Neuron is at uh, in the therapy development process? Sure. So happy to report that Neuron is in a phase three trial. And what that means is it's the largest study on all the phases of clinical trials and really is there to determine definitive drug efficacy, meaning does the drug do what it's designed to do? And does it help people with ALS get better in some way by some measurable outcome, right? And so they're in a phase three trial, which we're really happy about, and we're looking forward to see the results. Those results are not yet published because the phase three trial is still ongoing. And Brainstorm has said that it will not seek early approval of Neuron and that it intends to complete its phase three trial. So this is a decision that Brainstorm or the company, any company really in drug development, has to decide when to apply for approval for their drug. And what kind of factors go into that decision typically for those drug companies? Those types of decisions are based on their data. Okay. Right? So how, you know, they need to have enough people in it and enough data to show power or significant data, meaning that they can see a statistically significant change in their data. So they're not going to do that until they have enough people enrolled and that are through the trial. They have completed the trial. Yeah, they're going to want that. that Yeah, and it takes time. And so that's a huge factor. So they have to internally decide what's the best timing for them to apply to the FDA to get their drug approved. Right. So after that phase three trial comes the potential for FDA approval and access to those that are seeking the drug. I know that for neurons specifically, many folks out there are pointing to 
expanded access and, and right to try as options for early access. And some are even requesting an executive order from the president. But why are none of those options currently possible with Neuron? Sure. So I'll take a little bit of a step back just to explain each of those pathways because there's sure. a lot of confusion around them. And I want to make sure everyone's clear what they are. Please do. So the first one is expanded access. And that's sometimes also known as compassionate use. And that refers to the use of an investigational drug to treat a patient with serious disease like ALS that doesn't have any satisfactory options. So there's a bunch of different requirements in order to qualify for the expanded access. So access to a drug, an investigational drug through expanded access does require not only FDA's review and authorization, but an active involvement and cooperation of all parties. And that includes your doctor. They have need to give you a prescription and they have need to give, it, give you an okay to take this investigational drug and also includes a decision by the drug company to give you that drug. Mm, okay. So what I want to emphasize here is that the drug companies are not required to provide treatments to patients under expanded access. That's up to them. Right. Okay. And drug companies also under expanded access also have the right to charge a patient for the use of their, their therapy okay. in order to recover costs that are directly related to providing it to an individual person. And so some of these drugs have potential to be very, very expensive. So they have to decide as a company, do I want to give this drug to this person? And then if they do, they have a right to charge that person for the drug. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. So the other one is called right to try and it has a lot of similarities, but has to have completed an FDA approved phase one clinical trial. So it has to get through phase one trial mm-hmm. and it has to be actively in a clinical trial now. So it has to be in a phase two, phase three trial. So the difference between right to try and expanded access is that under right to try, there's no requirement to attain a review from the FDA. So it takes the FDA out of the picture here. Okay. okay? But still, as in the case of expanded access, drug companies are still not required to provide treatments to patients under right to try and have the ability to also charge the patient for that individual treatment. Okay. 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 So again, I'm going to say it one more time. So, because this is the most important point is that the company really has to make that decision. Only the company has to make that decision to make that drug, experimental drug available to the person and supply that treatment. Yeah. It really sounds like a lot is up to them and I'm sure they're, they're weighing liability and risk and different financial things and costs. And there's a ton that goes into that decision for the drug company, I'm sure. Right. And so in the case of Brainstorm, as indicated on multiple occasions that it won't provide their own to individuals via both expanded access or right to try. Mm-hmm. And this is really not uncommon. This happens a lot. And due to, like you said, these are big decisions companies have to make. And they're due to cost, cost of giving the drug and other factors that companies must weigh in to consider this. So it's, it's not like a hand-weaving thing. This is a very, very serious decision that a company has to make. And not many companies have expanded access programs or use right to try, um, not just in ALS, but in, any, in other diseases. It's pretty rare, especially in ALS. So I also want to emphasize, because, you know, like I said, Brainstorm has not decided not to apply to the FDA to get their tr- drug approved right now because they're still in phase three. Mm-hmm. And so, as you know, if you think about the executive order, you know, asking for President Trump's direct involvement in drug approval through an executive order could raise like many, many legal and timing challenges and get very complicated. Uh-huh. And I believe this would actually 
not get the drug to move any faster towards the clinic, in my opinion. Okay. So okay. I think that that pathway is just something that came up online that I believe is not going to help it out at all. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. That's good to know. Friend. Yeah. So, yeah. No. Yeah. I, I'm here to be honest and hopefully clear about some of these points because these are right to try and expand access are extremely difficult to understand. And there's, mm-hmm. like you said, Mike, there's so much misinformation out online yeah. that causes so much confusion and heartache. And it makes me so sad for this. Yeah. So I want to make sure that it's clear that, you know, what these pathways are and how likely that they are to actually be used. Yeah, we really appreciate that transparency, doctor, because we, of course, understand the desperation that people feel in seeking these treatments and wanting access to treatments that may potentially help themselves or their loved ones that are living with ALS. And there's just so much that goes into these legislative and financial and really, frankly, political decisions about what folks do and do not have access to throughout the drug development process. So it's good to have all that background and know kind of what goes into it. And you've mentioned the application to the FDA. Are are you talking about uh, the biologics license? Is that the final step before FDA approval? Right. So once they finish their phase three trial, then they have a meeting, or I'm sure multiple meetings, to decide to then apply to the FDA for approval. And that's through a biologics license application or BLA. And for Neurone, it's a BLA because it's a type of stem cell product. So it's a biological product, not necessarily a drug. So what it does is it's, what it's defined by the FDA. It's really a request to the FDA for permission to introduce or give a drug, a biological product into the clinic. So, so people then are to apply for people to actually be able to take that biologic. And it states that the product is safe. And like these applications, the, the BLA applications are really comprehensive and thorough. Yeah, I, I mean, extremely. It has all the things, all the information about the product yep. that's been collected so, so far. And that includes all the preclinical work, so all the work and all the animal models. And if there was work going back to those, you know, the, I'll go back to our beginning of our podcast, of the C. elegans, which is one of the smallest organisms that you can test drugs on. Yeah. All the way, you know, to potentially a primate or a monkey. That's wow. all there. All okay. the all the work in cells. That's all there. All their clinical studies, meaning all the information from every phase of clinical trial. And then they all they include labeling information in their manufacturing plan because they have to label it and make sure the label is accurate. And then they have mm-hmm. to make sure, okay, we have a drug or biologic. Now how What's your plan to get it to people and manufacture it? And I'm sure there's other things I'm missing, but you can see like this is a big deal and a lot of work. I have friends in pharmaceutical companies and when they're in this process, they are going crazy. It's a lot of work. (laughs) I believe it. I believe I'm I'm picturing like an encyclopedia thick, you know, document with all this information and all this data going back. I'm sure it's, it's a ton of work to compile all of that. It is. I love that. Ref- I love that um, analogy. It is like an encyclopedia. It's, it's an encyclopedia of all the data. And so once the FDA receives that, then they can start the review process and decide then whether or not to approve the biologic. In this case, like we're saying neuron for people with ALS, but could be, could be for anyone. And so right. in the case of Brainstorm, you don't have access to Brainstorm's data. Obviously, it's confidential to only to the company. But we do know, we've met, and we know well, the scientists are running the trial, and we have a lot of confidence in them. They're excellent people and scientists. And so, you know, if Brainstorm, 
is not ready for approval, they're not ready for approval and we respect that, meaning their application is not ready yet. And yeah. so, but what I want to say and emphasize is that when Brainstorm does apply for its VLA for Neurone, VLS Association will really stand ready to ask FDA for re- review. And so we're, we're looking forward to that day. And I think it's going to be great news for the entire LS community. So we're, something to look forward to. And I, I'm hoping to see something relatively soon. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Yersak, for walking us through that. It's so helpful to have all this information about the FDA approval process, about the different options in there. And I, it's, it's educating me, and I, I'm sure that it's educating our listeners. So I appreciate the depth you went into there. You're welcome. And just to clarify on how the various phases work, because I know we're talking quite a bit about that, the ALS Association typically funds trials up to and through phase two, right? Uh, Who is it that that funds phase three trials most often? Right. So as an association, we've made the the call to only fund up to phase two. And the reason why is because phase three trials are just really expensive costing many times more than our annual research budget. So mm-hmm. it could cost like hundreds of millions of dollars to, talk, to do a phase three trial. And we only have a $17 million budget this year. So just to mm-hmm. put that in perspective, the money. Yep. So we can really only, if we did give money, it would only be a, a small level of support. And I don't think that would really change the course of the trial. But what we're really good at at the association to get more impact for funding is to do projects and to fund projects that wouldn't otherwise get funding by, for example, other organizations like the National Institutes of Health or other ALS nonprofit organizations based on specific S through our research applications. So we have, yeah, so we think about what are the gaps in funding and we go back and think about that and then put an RFA to then to ask for requests for applications to fill that get research gap. So we're really good at that. And the other thing we want to do that I want to emphasize is that we do work a lot with other ALS nonprofits, and that includes like ALS Funding Cure, Project ALS, Target ALS, the MDA, and others I'm missing. I'm sorry I missed you. But you know who you are. (laughs) To combine our money together to fund bigger projects, right? Or like a phase two trial, for example, which is one of the most expensive RFAs we have. So mm-hmm. we're not, so we can pull our money together and have more bang for our buck and say, we really, we came together with other organizations. We really believe in this project and here's a few million dollars to, to move forward. And, and we do that, we do that pretty often actually. And so that's something we're, we're really excited about. And it's a really great way that we're able to collaborate with other ALS organizations. So if we're not funding phase three trials, what usually happens is that the companies, the pharmaceutical companies, seek investment other yep. ways, usually yep. through investment firms, such as like venture capital firms, or maybe even issuing more stock at their company. But sure. I'm going to be completely honest, Mike, I'm not a financial person whatsoever. <laughs> so that's all I got for you for that. <laughs> but they have really great financial savvy people at their companies and that raise money for the phase three trials and they're very good at it. Yeah, they'd have to be right if they're seeking hundreds of millions of dollars for those phase three trials. Yeah, I, I believe that. And it's very cool to hear about the collaboration that you mentioned between some of the other ALS-focused organizations, because I think sometimes people wonder if the ALS Association or another organization is operating in a vacuum and really making these decisions on their own and, and just kind of 
sometimes I hear the word compete, honestly, out there that they think different ALS organizations are competing with one another in, in funding research. And that's really not the case. It's, it's we all want the same thing. And, and that's a world without ALS. So anytime that we can come together and uh, whether it's in funding or just ideating some of these projects, uh, the, the more we all benefit. Right. It's, it's really important. I, I can't emphasize enough the collaboration that we are able to, to do at the ALS Association with other organizations. It's really important because if we can pull money together, it's just so much more impactful for these companies or for these researchers around the world to get more work done in a shorter period of time. And so, you know, in the research program is probably one of our, in my opinion, one of the best ways that we can collaborate with other organizations. And we're really proud of it. And we have really strong relationships with chief scientists across the board of all, all these other organizations, in addition to some of their care and advocacy people too, that go along with our mission. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's so great to hear. And I want to ask you about some of the other therapies, and you don't have to get into specifics about them, but I know everyone is talking about neurone. That's that's the one on everyone's mind. But in reality, there are several new treatments in the pipeline that could potential show promise, correct? Yeah, yeah. And a neuron gets a lot of press, but there's so many other great new treatments out there in the pipeline that I can quickly touch on that we're really excited about and that we funded either preclinically or in a phase um, one or two trials. So the first thing I want to talk about is these things called anti-sense drugs. And this is a, a phase three trial and a phase one trial that are happening with Biogen. And anti-sense drugs are something we funded preclinically actually very early on in the process. So the idea actually came out of University of San Diego in Dr. John Cleveland's lab with Dr. Richard Smith. And they had this idea and we were able to fund this very early on. I think we were the first funder of this type of technology. Okay. And what it does is very cool. It actually is a way to get rid of bad protein in your cells. So this bad protein can cause toxicity and cause your cells to die. And so this technology is able to get rid of that bad protein and actually prevent it to even be made in the first place. So very cool, something that I've been following for a while. And Biogen recently put out some really great phase two results that target SOD1. So this is a type of gene therapy. So this actually is for people who have genetic forms of ALS that inherit from their parent, one of their parents. Sure. And so this SOD1 is the second most common genetic cause of ALS. And so... It's in a phase three trial right now, which we're really excited about, and we're hoping to hear from them soon. And, you know, if approved, it'll be the first step in ALS gene therapy. And wow. I think that if that gets approved, and I, I'm very, I'm, a, I'm a very confident, I'm very optimistic person. So I feel like if that gets approved in SOD1, it just opens the floodgates to then target all the other ALS genes. So yeah. right now there's about... 30 genes that have been discovered and validated. And so we can potentially hit down the road all those genes and help all those people have that familial ALS. And so, so cool. And so there's a new, there's another drug in Biogen antisense drug targeting the C9 ORF72 mutation, and that's the most common genetic mutation ALS. And so it hit an even bigger population, and that's in phase one. Okay. So we expect and we're hoping for really great results out of Biogen. And then the other two I want to quickly touch on is some recent news that I heard. First is from Amelix Pharmaceuticals. It's a small biotech firm in Boston. The founders, they did their graduate work at Brown. And so they just published some really great phase two results. 
for their drug called AMX003. And we were able to fund that trial in collaboration with ALS Finding a Cure and the MDA, which is, this is one of those examples of how we've been able to jointly fund projects with other organizations. And so what they showed in their recent report is a statistically significant slowing of ALS disease progression is measured by a fun- the ALS functional rating scale. So that's a typical primary measurement of ALS, of function of, of people with ALS compared to a placebo. So this is really exciting. So the, the folks at Amalax are really looking at this data more closely and we'll publish it in a, new, in a journal shortly and also at a, an upcoming conference. And so we'll hear soon what the next steps are of how they're going to pursue the next phase of the trial. So nice. very exciting results that are really promising and they're a great company. And I think they have a great product that we're really excited to be able to be a part of and fund. And the, I, the last one I think, also doesn't get a lot of press, but I, I, I want to emphasize is it's called Arimoclomal. This drug is in a phase three trial for ALS out of a, a Danish company, actually, called Orphazyme. And what Arimoclomal does, it actually helps clear that bad, that toxic proteins from your cells. It helps mm. get, get that bad protein out too, but in a different way than antisense. So it's kind mm. of a, the, each drug has their own way a mechanism to work right and so this is a little bit different but also i think could be very effective so they're in a phase three trial and i think they're almost if not fully enrolled and so i'm hoping we'll hear results for them soon and what they just showed which i just read online the other day is that they look i'm looking at the press release right now mike so i guess it's Mm -hmm. right is that they actually published a press release that showed that they're using arimoclomal for another disease called Neiman Pick disease type C. Okay. And they announced that this really showed after a 12 month data extension trial, they showed a sustained effect in reducing disease progression over two years. So they found some really great results for another disease that gives me hope that arimoclomal, once we get the data for ALS will also be positive. So very exciting for, for the company and for, I think, people with ALS and their families that this could be a potential other oral drug that they could take, uh, hopefully, in the near future. So something coming down this pipeline that I think to keep your eye out on. Yeah, that's extremely exciting, like you said. And I think most of us that aren't as plugged into the world of ALS research, we don't necessarily come across that info and and you really only see the splashy stuff that ends up more in the mainstream media. So to have you talk about some of those other pieces that are coming through the pipeline, that's very cool. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. I think, you know, there's a lot of different information out there. And I think one of the best places to get information about ALS research is through our blog, alsa.org backslash blog. And everything there has been fact-checked is accurate and we're very proud of our blog and there's a lot of research content there so if you have a question I, I hope people will go to that blog and do a quick search and get accurate information on some of these research projects and it has exciting news about some of these new trials and and results that are coming out over the over time. Thank you for mentioning that. I was going to ask you that question, actually, for, for anyone that has questions. The website is always a great resource, and we will link to that in the show notes as well if, if people want to visit the site to see the blog and get some of those questions answered and some of that information that's available. I also want to ask you, doctor, somewhat related, 
what else people can do to get involved in ALS research? And, and I know uh, advocacy is a big part of it. And ALS is a disease that can often leave families and individuals feeling helpless. Like there's not a lot that they can do to stem the tide. And there's also so many questions and conversation around ongoing trials and research participation and how to access those things. What are some of the avenues that people can explore if they want to participate more deeply in ALS research? Yeah, I think, you know, when you first think about ALS research, you have to participate. So we always go right to clinical trials, but there's other creative ways to give information that's really critical. One of the ones that's always good to, to do is to sign up for the National ALS Registry. And that helps actually track how many people currently live with ALS and also track how many people are diagnosed each year. And so that's something that we've been supporting for very many years through our advocacy efforts that we're really proud of. And the goal of the National Registry is really to look at environmental risk factors for ALS in certain areas of the country. So, you know, something in the ground or in the water or whatever, in the air could be anything in the mm -hmm. environment that is making me sick. So they'll be able to see that there's a group of people in this area you know, this, that doesn't seem right. And then they can, we can then take that information, the researchers and ALS community, and take that information from the registry and start looking, delving into those areas and then potential risk factors that cause ALS. So yep. that's something they can always do. It doesn't take a lot of time. And we have a really wonderful relationship with the CDC who runs this. And so I can't emphasize enough to sign up for that. And the other one I want to do a shameless plug for is a new hmm. program that we're about to launch by the end of the month, and that's called ALS Focus. Okay. And so ALS Focus is a survey platform. And to really start understanding the needs and preferences and experiences of people with ALS and their caregivers across hmm. the disease spectrum, you know, understanding what are those burdens, what are those challenges? And so, you know, there's a lot of burdens out there in that some of them, you know, we hear about all the time that people have problems accessing home health or have financial difficulty because of ALS. And so what we want to do is, in a scientifically rigorous way, gather data, information, that, mm -hmm. that data, to show that there's actually a problem. We know there's mm -hmm. a problem, but we yep. need data. And so that data that we're going we're gonna to collect will really inform decisions that are made by key opinion leaders like policymakers, mm -hmm. the FDA, Congress, pharmaceutical companies, and even ALS sure. Association leadership to inform our strategic plan, how we want to move forward as an organization. And those decisions can then inform programs or policies to help make a difference in people's lives. So looking at home health, insurance issues, financial burden, people need certain equipment, what matters most to you with ALS? Like if I were to get the drug to, to help me get better, like what would that be? Would it be like, you know, playing a video game? Do I love video games versus like petting my dog or cat? Mm. You know, what, what is most meaningful for people with ALS? Yeah. And so what we're going to do is start the survey on platform and people with ALS, current and past caregivers, 18, 18 and older, only in the United States are able to apply. So there's very, very open eligibility requirements, unlike, many clinical trials. And so four times a year, we'll put out a survey. And so once you sign up, you'll be able to, you put your demographic information in one time. Mm -hmm. If you want to update it later, you can, but mm -hmm. it's really one time. And then you'll get pinged at four times a year about a survey. Okay. So yeah, I'm excited about it. And I think what's really exciting and it sets us apart from other surveys that are going out, because I know 
when we were forming this prop program, we have a, a patient caregiver advisory committee who's been wonderful to work with. Yeah. And they kept saying, you know, we get so inundated by surveys. Like we want to do this in a thoughtful way that we don't have to continually get annoyed by like surveys. And so right. how can we do this not to be annoying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we thought we took that in mind and they also helped us figure out what are the best questions we can ask and you know, what are the survey topics, what do they care most about? We're able to make those decisions. And so what's very cool is that we'll be able to look at results by zip code to understand specific needs and burden in specific areas of our country, which is very cool. Oh, yeah. And then also participants will be able to actually check the results when the survey closes compared to others, which I always like to do personally when I take a survey. And then the, the most thing I'm excited about is that all the data that we collect will be open and free to the entire layout community, you know, meaning that's free to pharmaceutical companies, it's free to researchers, it's free to our chapters, it's free to other ALS organizations or other organizations right. that are interested. This data is open and free. And so we're so proud of that. So what we're hoping is that we're going to build these really robust data sets that people can mm -hmm. really delve into and really start doing some great research that help really solve some of these big challenges people with ALS have. That's a great idea. ALS focus and leaving it open like that, as you just mentioned, that data is so powerful. And I can envision these different organizations, these different groups really gleaning a lot from those data sets over time and being able to use them in creative ways that are are really going to help us all. I, that, exactly. That's our goal. And we've been talking to other ALS organizations and other researchers, and we have some really great collaborators and really some great corporate sponsors are helping move us forward, which has just been wonderful to work with. And especially our patient and caregivers on our committee have just been so much fun to work with. And so we'll launch, Mike, I'll send more information out on the national and the chapter level about sure. this new program. We'll, we'll launch, I think, definitely by the end of January. And our first survey is around insurance and financial burden. And so we were asking questions about what types of insurance people they let have over the course of the disease and how does that change? What are the costs? Is the coverage they have adequate? What are the gaps? You know, what are those experiences people are having? You know, not only the people with ALS, but their caregivers who do a lot of the paperwork too. What are those experiences and burdens they have in, ma in maintaining or their coverage and have they lost their coverage? So this is something that we thought was really important as a group that decided this along with our patient caregiver committee and our steering committee and looking forward to getting this first survey out, started to get some really great data in the next month or so. So I'll definitely keep you posted and thank you for letting me give this plug. <laughs> oh no, that's great news. And and I know that our, our listeners will be excited to hear about it and they'll keep their eyes open. And, and as Dr. Yersak mentioned, look for that at the end of January here. And we'll also include any information on our social media channels to make sure you have access to that. And that's going to be a nice step forward. And again, Data is power, so we're all looking forward to that. Yeah, and if our listeners have any other questions about anything I said today, you know, I think one of the best places to get information is like our, a blog, our blog, like I said. They've published several articles around their own and clinical trials, so just do a search, a simple search on that. And then you can always email us at questions at alsa-national.org. We have a wonderful person who reads all your emails, everything gets read, and then she then divvies those questions up to the most appropriate person to answer them. So please 
feel free to always email us there. Yeah, we'll put that email address in the show notes as well so people can click on that and send any questions they have. Thank you again, Dr. Yersak, for your time today. As the Senior Director of Mission Strategy for the ALS Association, you have access to all this information and and being able to share it with us is a really big deal. And uh, we appreciate it and our listeners appreciate it as well. Thank you, Mike, for having me. I, I always enjoy working with you and your chapter and Please reach out to us, organization, with any type of questions, and hopefully we can do this again soon, Mike. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's going to be our only segment on this episode. We wanted to make sure we gave Dr. Yersak plenty of time to give us that deep, behind-the-scenes look at ALS research, and I'd like to thank her one more time for joining the pod. This won't be the last time you hear from us in January, though. Keep your eyes and ears open for some bonus content dropping next week. And of course, the easiest way to be notified when we release something fresh into the feed is to follow us on Facebook or Twitter, or as I mentioned at the top, subscribe at ConnectingALS.org to get all the latest. Connecting ALS is produced by Garrett Tiedemann from the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you.